Hey, this is Jill from the Container Store. Oh. Is there something wrong? I just thought a virtual designer would be a cool robot. I could do a robot voice if that helps. Maybe? Hi, I am Jill. Let's design. Nope, absolutely not. Regular voice, thank you. Yeah, I'm not good at impressions. Enjoy free virtual in-home closet design and up to 25% off closet systems with the Container Store's custom closet sale. The Container Store, where space comes from. Good morning. Welcome. It's Eric Erickson here. I hope your day is off to a good start. Six after the hour. Let's get going. There is polling news out of Georgia. The state is trending. Well, pretty heavily to Donald Trump. So listen, there's there's a point here that needs to be made. and, And there's a reason I bring all of this up and why it's so important that I talk about this out of the gate this morning. Uh, This is WSB TV, a landmark communications poll. It is of 500 likely voters. It has a margin of error of 4.4%. So it is not the best poll. You should know that. Uh, But what makes this significant and why I think it's relevant, and I'm fairly critical of this poll typically, and I am now too, and I'll explain why, but... What makes this so interesting to me is that they use the same model. Some polls, you should understand that some pollsters, every single poll that comes out, they shift the percentage of people. So one week, 50% of the people will be Democrats the ne- and, and 40% Republicans. And the next week, 50% Republicans, 40% Democrats. Uh, there, there are problems with, with that polling methodology. There are also problems with robocall polls and things like that. This poll at least uses the same model from the last poll, which makes it interesting because it fits the trend lines we're seeing from from the live operator polls that do the same thing. And that is that the president of the United States did get a bounce and he got a bounce in Georgia. This is relevant because the last time this poll was conducted, it was essentially a tied race in Georgia. Uh, it was uh, 47-44 in favor of, of President Trump. Now it's 48 48- 41, 48-41. And this is, uh, the reason I start the show with this is for the larger trend lines nationwide that show that after the conventions, the Republicans very clearly did have a good convention and very clearly uh, the president got some level of benefit from both the Democratic and the Republican convention. But there's a larger point here as well. Uh, The Democrats have been telling us for some time that Georgia is going to be a swing state. Georgia is going to be a a key state. Now, they've been telling us that publicly. Stacey Abrams has been saying that publicly, but the money doesn't back it up. They're not putting their money where their mouth is, and that's always important in politics. This is why, for example, for everyone who says the polling is wrong, you can tell that the presidential campaigns believe the polling because their spending aligns with the with the polling. So for example, the polling suggests the president is behind. And it turns out that Joe Biden is outspending the president in ads right now and the president's team is is revving it up. Now you've heard, you have heard the stories that the president is outspending Joe Biden. Yes. The president's campaign is outspending Joe Biden's campaign. But the Democrats are outspending the Republicans when you combine the outside groups. And that is reflected in the polling and that is reflected in the president's position behind the scenes, pushing the outside groups to engage now. 
you have heard the polling suggest that Minnesota may be in play for the president. Well, it turns out the president is opening a massive uh, spending ad buy in Minnesota, and the Democrats are now having to respond, including launching a national ad campaign by Joe Biden denouncing the violence and riots. The polling has suggested the president got bounces from the Democratic and the Republican conventions, and guess what? It is reflected in what we're seeing in terms of the campaign spending. It's okay for you to be dismissive of the polling. The polling is never accurate. The polling is always a an indicator of where things are headed. Uh, pay not attention so much to the actual percentages as to where the candidates rank. And there are big margins of errors. But you do have to recognize the fact that the campaigns treat the polling legitimate and the polling average is legitimate. When polling suggests Minnesota's in play and suddenly you see the president doing big ad buys there and going there, it suggests the president's campaign uh, is seen in their own internal polling. And internal polling is always better than the external polling. They're seeing what the external polls are seeing. Uh, when you see Joe Biden suddenly having to launch a national ad campaign on law and order and the polling shows that this issue is benefiting the president, you can tell that they're taking the polling seriously. When you see the Joe Biden campaign making a lot of bluster about spending money in Georgia and they're not actually doing it, you can tell they're taking seriously the external polling showing that Georgia really isn't as in play as the Democrats are publicly saying. When the president of the United States is having to spend extra money in Pennsylvania, uh, you can tell the president is taking very seriously the polling that Pennsylvania is slipping away from him. Uh, when you can tell that both sides are invested in going to Florida, you can tell Florida is a swing state. Follow the candidates and, and put on the map what the polling says, and you can get a sense of what polls the campaigns believe and don't believe. And by and large, the trend lines in the public polling seem to be reflected in the internal polling. What you need to understand with internal polling by the, these campaigns is internal polling is way better than the public polling. Why? Campaigns have a bigger budget than media outlets do for polling. And they spend way more time tracking the day-to-day -day bumps in the campaign based on tracking polling conducted around the nation, and particular in key swing states. And so when campaigns respond, they tend to be responding to what they see in their internal polling trends. Joe Biden coming out and giving a speech on law and order and also going around the country talking about law and order suggests Joe Biden's campaign sees trend lines in his internal polling of a, a larger sample of voters than what the media does, that there clearly is an issue uh, that he needs to bat down. Now, where does all of this leave us? Well, for Georgia, where we are with this polling, it shows Republicans are consolidating and Democrats are not. It also shows that the libertarian candidate here as nationally isn't going to have a big impact. Uh, Joe Jorgensen uh, is the libertarian candidate for president. She's later got bit by the rabid bat a while back. Uh, and I have heard libertarians tell me, oh, no, we're, we're all going to vote for uh, Joe Jorgensen. The problem is that the libertarian candidate really doesn't matter that much. The Libertarian candidate combined with the Green Party candidate can throw some states, but not very significantly because Joe Jorgensen is not a credible candidate. Uh, only the, the Libertarian Party voters like her. She's not luring in a bunch of other people. When Gary Johnson ran in 2016, he was able to pull people into the Libertarian sphere that normally aren't in. She is unable to pull a lot of people in. Uh, from the other side, uh, from, from the non-libertarian sphere, and she's not going to have a big, big difference. And this is the thing that keeps the Republicans awake at night, is 
without Jill Stein, without Gary Johnson, will voters break for Joe Biden, unlike uh, with Hillary Clinton? And we don't really know that yet. There are some hints that it could benefit Joe Biden. But let, let's dwell here for Georgia just a minute. Uh, WSB-TV, Landmark Communications poll, Trump is ahead of Biden, 48-41, 2% go with the Libertarian, 9% are undecided. And that's the issue here. 9% are undecided. They didn't go from Biden to Trump. They went from Biden to undecided. It doesn't take a genius to recognize that a portion of the so-called undecideds are actually Trump voters. If you weren't here yesterday listening, uh, let me just give you a, a very brief review of what I said. I've talked to pollsters, Democrat, Independent, Republican, affiliated with the Trump campaign, close to the Biden team, uh, corporate pollsters and the like. There is almost universal consensus that whenever you see a poll that has Donald Trump at, let's say, 10, let's just, just, we're doing hypotheticals here, calm down. If you see Donald Trump at 10 points, add two points to it. He's really at 12. If you see Donald Trump at 30, he's really at 32. If you see him at 35, he's really at 37. If you see him at 48, he's really at 50. If you see him at 48, he's really at 50. Now, why? There is still a phenomenon in the states, even though he's the incumbent president now, there are still more Trump voters unwilling to talk to pollsters, dismissive of pollsters, untrustworthy of pollsters, and who want to lie to pollsters. Trump voters uniquely uh, do not like to engage with pollsters, and when they do, tend to lie. Now, why is that? There are a number of reasons. One, uh, pollsters call from unknown numbers, and Trump voters have a higher propensity with cell phones and landlines to not answer phone numbers from people they don't know. Two, they are in areas where they believe that uh, pollsters actually are in on it. And if they tell the pollster they're voting for Trump, word could get out. And in their community, it could be detrimental to their career or their family. Uh, there is a level of intimidation in this country for supporting the president. Uh, go on social media and see that. Uh, look at what happens when I tell people that I've supported the president. Uh, you, you'd be amazed at the number of people come after me. I mean, the number of media appearances that got canceled after I said I'd support the president in 2020. Uh, I actually was even shocked by it. And, and I knew I, I could get in some trouble uh, by beating the media and saying that I was supporting the president after not supporting him in 2016. But I even I I didn't expect it would be as extensive as it was, and yet it was. Uh, Trump voters understand that in suburban areas and urban areas, if they come out as Trump voters, uh, you're more likely to face repercussions than you are supporting Biden. Uh, that's really striking and something the media doesn't pay attention to because the media wants you to believe it's the Trump supporters who are the most intolerant and hostile, and that's not really true. So every pollster I've talked to, Republican, Democrat, independent, corporate, non-corporate, non-profit, you name it, they're convinced 2 to 3% uh, for Trump. I'm using 2% to be conservative. Uh, but if that is 2%, you add 2% to where, Joe, uh, where Donald Trump is at 48% in Georgia, and he's at 50% in Georgia. And Biden can't get to 50% with the libertarian candidate at 2% in Georgia. Biden's not going to get to 50%. And you know, interestingly enough, Donald Trump's not going to get 50% in Georgia probably either. In fact, when you look at Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump only got 48%. Donald Trump is where he was in 2016 in the actual vote. But that's good for him. 
there's a larger issue here as well. Democrats nationally recognize uh, that what Stacey Abrams is telling you about Georgia being in play this year isn't really true. Uh, Georgia is not really in true this year. Georgia is in true, is, is in play truthfully in the next couple of years unless the Republicans are able to consolidate some level of majority with Hispanic voters. If Republicans in Georgia can figure out a way to build a governing coalition with Hispanic voters, they've taken Georgia off the table for another decade or so. Um, and, and if you, um, if you want to engage further on this, go back to the speculation from 2016 with even Stacey Abrams. There were lots of interviews in the AJC and elsewhere on whether Georgia was a blue state or a purple state. And the main reason is because they, um, they, there was a series of polls that came out in August of 2016 that had Hillary Clinton ahead of Donald Trump in Georgia. And the media started running stories on is Georgia really in play? And the consensus even then from Democrats was that no, Georgia's not really in play. You gotta do 2022, 2024 before Georgia demographically with the trend lines is in play. Well, fast forward to 2018 and, and Stacey Abrams made a very big deal about the fact that suddenly Georgia was in play. That was to benefit her and to get national money into Georgia. It wasn't really true. And in fact, people missed the fact that she didn't lose a runoff. She lost getting into a runoff. She didn't get enough votes to even get into the runoff. And you can cry voter suppression all you want, but that's mythology. She just didn't have the votes there, even in the suburbs. The state has not changed fundamentally in two years. If anything, the Republican ground game was off in 2018, and the Republican ground game is more productive in 2020 going into it, and so the odds of the Democrats picking up the state are good. Now, there are some state legislative districts in Georgia where the Republicans are going to lose. I can guarantee you the Republicans are going to see a reduction of seats in the state house in particular and probably lose a couple of seats in the state Senate. Doesn't mean they're going to lose the majorities. It does mean they're going to lose seats. I don't think they're going to lose the majorities. Some Republicans privately believe they are going to lose the majority in the state house. I don't see that in the polling. In fact, I see Bob Trammell being in danger. Bob Trammell is the uh, Democratic leader in the house and I see him uh, potentially losing his seat. The bottom line here, Latest polling out of Georgia shows what all the national polls are showing for Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Joe Biden actually got hurt by the conventions. Donald Trump was helped in that it consolidated his base, and he did pick up some support. These are the trend lines the parties are dealing with. The national trend lines, however, still actually look good for Joe Biden. Why? One simple thing that Joe Biden has done unintentionally. One simple thing has happened in the last four years that people are only just now picking up in in the polling, and it actually does give Joe Biden a little bit of a benefit. That, my friends, is called a tease. Stick around. This hour of the program is brought to you by First Liberty Building and Loan. Uh, they're here in Georgia, but if you're listening nationwide, they can help you. FirstLibertyGA.com is their website. They are a uh, they're a building and loan, and they make their own lending decisions. If you're a business and you need access to capital, need loans, bridge loans, you name it, uh, they can come up with creative strategies to help your business grow into a really big business. They can help you navigate the world of PPP and the like if you are a business. Now, if you're an individual, they're not for you. 
if you if you run a business, if you make the financial decisions for your business, you should check out First Liberty Living Alone. I've known the Frost family for years. They've been doing this since 1993. They are very good at it. And, and again, they make their own decisions. So you work hand in hand with them to help your business. If you need assistance, firstlibertyga.com is their website. Nationwide, they can help people. Firstlibertyga.com uh, could not have gotten the show off the ground without them as well. So uh, you you help me by by doing business with them as well, and and I can't thank them enough. There's a thing that that uh, is one trend line for Joe Biden that you all need to be aware of. And again, we got two months, but this is the biggest problem for the Trump campaign. When you dive deep into the polling, here's what you see. The president has gained a little bit with Hispanic voters, and he's gained a little bit with black men. All of that has been offset, though, by his losses with senior citizens. That's the thing that keeps the Trump campaign concerned. Senior citizens are the largest group of voters in the country. They broke decisively for Donald Trump in 2016, and they're not this time. Now, don't call me and say, well, my mama is voting for Donald Trump, or or I'm 82 and I'm voting for Donald Trump. Your anecdote is not data. The data is actually pretty compelling. And in states like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania that can track ballot requests and do so at a partisan level, we're seeing senior citizens uh, coming out hard and it looks like those people are going for the Democrat in a way they, for Joe Biden in a way they didn't in 2016. And the president needs to hold that group. That group is going to be deeply decisive in Florida. If if the president loses Florida, it's game over for him. Uh, the president has no path to 270 electoral college votes without winning Florida. And senior citizens in Florida overwhelmingly right now look like they're trending towards Joe Biden. Now, Why? Why would you go towards Joe Biden if you're a senior citizen, particularly when you're worried about crime and, and break-ins and everything else? They're tired. They they are tired. Uh, say what you will about the Democrats, but for four years, they have done their best to sow chaos and turmoil, and they've worn a lot of people out. And that's what's picked up in the polling. Senior citizens are worried about Donald Trump. They're worried about his competence. They're worried about his leadership on the virus. And they're just exhausted. They're they're tired of the four years. He's got some work to do with him. He's got time to do it. Don't don't be mad at me as the messenger of, of bad news. This is just the reality that the president has to deal with. But he can. He does have time. And the law and order message is pulling senior citizens back to him. That's why Joe Biden is being so aggressive now. Coming out, he's going to launch a national ad campaign by the end of the week on law and order, uh, denouncing the riots, denouncing the violence. Because Joe Biden sees that senior citizens who have trended in his direction are starting to go back in the other direction. There's an area that the Trump campaign can, can push on, though. In Minnesota... A legal fund was set up to get rioters out of jail. Many of the rioters who were bailed out of jail with this legal fund uh, went on to commit violent crimes or had been accused and charged with violent crimes. Kamala Harris raised money for that group. Kamala Harris raised money to get those people out of jail. And the president's campaign can and should capitalize on that issue. The law and order issue works for the president. In fact, 
When we come back from our next commercial break, Jerron Smith is going to join me. He's the deputy assistant to the president. and wants to talk about that specific issue, what the president intends to do on law and order. Uh, this is something that the president's team realizes in the polling. They thought they were going to have to be on defense with the, with the virus, and suddenly they're on offense with law and order. It, it, it helps tremendously that, uh, the, that the vice president, Joe Biden, is on the side of a bunch of people, including Bernie Sanders and AOC, who are trying to give a pass to the people out there and trying to say there's no big deal. Uh, Jerron Smith uh, from the White House, Deputy Assistant to the President for Domestic Policy, Deputy Director of the Office of American Innovation, going to be calling in when we come back from break to talk about this particular issue. In about five minutes, Jerron Smith is going to join me by phone. He's the Deputy Assistant to the President uh, for the Domestic Office of... of um, Oh, what is it? Domestic Policy Director of the Office of American Innovation. Uh, wanting to talk about the lawlessness on the streets and what the president wants to do about it to protect uh, the streets and stuff. They clearly realize this is an issue for them. And Joe Biden clearly realizes it's an issue for him because the Biden campaign has decided he's got to start running ads on this. There's another issue that relates to all of this. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but August was yet another record month for gun sales. Let me pull this up. Uh, Stephen Gutowski from the Washington Free Beacon. Uh, where is the Free Beacon website? You know, I used to have this stuff better bookmarked, and I've got so many news bookmarks now. There it is. I got to find it in the list. Uh, but uh, Gutowski has this headline: August shatters another gun sales record. Uh, a Michigan instructor says, "I've never seen a higher level of interest in guns." August 2020 saw more gun sales than any other August on record as Americans continue to rush to gun stores at a record pace. A Washington Free Beacon analysis of FBI data released on Tuesday found a 57% increase in sales compared to August 2019. There were at least 1.6 million sales in August 2020. Only two previous Augusts have broken a million sales, though limitations in FBI reporting mean that not every gun sale is captured in the data. August represents the sixth month in a row to set a new sales record, with March seeing the most gun sales of any month in the history of the FBI background check system. Sales thus far in 2020 have soared past previous years. Sales through the first eight months of the year are up 43% over the previous record. In 15 years of teaching firearm safety, I have never seen a higher level of interest in guns Rick Ector, a Detroit-based firearms instructor, told the Washington Free Beacon, I do not need to advertise, and my phone is constantly ringing. A June report from the gun industry's trade group indicated uh, dealers believe 40% of buyers since March have been first-time owners. The group pegged the total number of new owners at under five, just under 5 million. If the estimated percentage of new owners holds for August, that would mean at least 640,000 Americans bought a gun for the first time in August. The surge in firearm owners could have a significant impact on gun politics and American elections for years to come. Hector said the sales are driven by concerns over the pandemic, the economic downturn, and recent rioting in places like Kenosha, Wisconsin, and Portland, Oregon. He expects the record sales to keep up through the end of the year, pointing to Democrat nominee Joe Biden's strict gun control policies and his lead in national polling. That's a pretty telling sign about what's going on in the country. I mean, it is significant, frankly, that so many people out there who have never bought guns before 
suddenly think they need to buy them. And I'll tell you one thing you need to do if you're going to get a gun. Having uh, So, you know, Christian and I, we had security issue in 2016, and I, I've never really been, you know, get, and people tell me this is normal. Guns scare me. I just, I don't, I don't like, I've, I've known people who their kids got accidentally shot. Um, I just, it, it, it scares me, but we decided we needed to do it. And to, to get over the concern, the thing we did is we got ourselves educated. We took classes. Uh, we learned from good people and you need to do the same. You know, so if you're in the middle Georgia area, by the way, Eagle Gun Range here in Macon, um, my wife went over there. They are just delightful people. I mean, genuinely wonderful people. And uh, it is worth you considering uh, a place like Eagle if you're in middle Georgia. If you're, I mean, all over the state, there are great gun stores uh, that can get you trained. And I will tell you, I, I've mentioned before the, the Archon Ready Group. And the Archon Ready Group, a friend of mine, uh, works with them. And my wife and I signed up for one of their gun classes in December, and it sold out pretty quick. I mentioned it on radio, and it sold out. They've decided to come back and do another one in January, January 23rd and 4th, uh, at the South River Gun Club in Atlanta. If you're interested at all, I'm just while I'm talking, I, I set this up for you. If you text the word DATA to 33777, text the word DATA to 33777, I'll send you a link back, and you can see the Archon Ready uh, class. It's going to be January 23rd, 24th. They are probably the best gun training instructors in the country. And they're rarely in the Southeast. They're coming twice, December, and January. And it really is worth uh, getting great training. And they are probably the best around. Uh, so go to uh, text data to 33777. Uh, if you're going to buy a gun, if you're a new gun owner, you need to be trained. These guys are the best. Uh, a lot of special operators from the military doing it um, in this group who train you and probably more instructors per pupil uh, than any other gun instruction class in the country. So text data to 33777. Now, joining me from the White House is uh, the Deputy Assistant to the President for Domestic Policy and Deputy Director of the Office of American Innovation, Jerron Smith. Uh, good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you, Eric? I'm great. I'm glad to have you with me this morning. As the president made it to Kenosha yesterday, uh, the former vice president has thus far not wanted to go to those areas. And there does seem to be a, a strong support for the president taking a firm position on law and order in the country. What really is public policy-wise is he going to do, particularly if some of these Democratic mayors refuse to let federal authorities help them? So I don't want to get uh, too ahead uh, of the president on, and I think we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But I, I, yeah, think I don't want to put you in a bad spot here. I'm sorry? Yeah, I don't yeah, want to put you in a bad spot here. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. I think what he's showcasing Kenosha, though, is um, what happens when um, local authorities um, and, and state and federal all work together um, to quell uh, social unrest and violence. Um, they were able to make a number of different arrests, um, over 200 different arrests, um, and it stopped. Um, and, and then for those individuals that want to peaceful protest um, and exercise their First Amendment rights, um, that they have that now. Um, and then they also have the, the ability to rebuild their city um, and, and, and get back to prosperity. Uh, we were able to see a number of small businesses that um, were, were burned and um, um, vandalized 
Um, and it's just not the way um, that we have a civil society. And if any um, community was watching, um, they saw that, that there's possibilities if you partner with the president. We're willing to help and work with those local officials. Um, but when you have um, local leaders that want to politicize this and neglect um, and neglect their their their, their basic right of protecting their people. Um, we have bad consequences that come from it. Yeah, we do have the bad consequences, and, and there are signs now between the virus and the violence. A lot of people are abandoning some of the urban cores in the country, uh, moving out of them, and it, it, it seems like I read a study that in riots in the in the 1970s, uh, it was 20 to 30 years before cities really started economically starting to thrive again. Uh, and now suddenly we're, we're back at a, a collapse situation, both economically with what's happened with the virus and shutdowns and the violence. Um, where is the president on on that particular issue, particularly the economic tie into this? Yes, and, and I'm glad you said that. That's something that I've said um, almost since the beginning of this. Um, you know, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, many of the communities that I grew up around uh, had been um, ravaged from um, the riots from the, the late 70s and looked that way all the way up until now. Um, uh, they were just starting to rebuild. Um, and, and what you're seeing is us going in the, back in the opposite direction. Um, I was hired as the director of urban affairs and revitalization policy early on in the administration to focus on a holistic way that we can partner with cities to help revitalize them. And that's why we created the White House Opportunity Revitalization Council to do just that. But you need local leadership. Um, and, and it's sad to say that um, throughout my, my experience here, um, so many local leaders have continued to neglect working with us for political reasons. Um, but in the cities where we've had uh, mayors work with us, we've seen change. Um, and in those areas where they haven't, um, the status quo ha- has has remained the same. And I think people are tired of it. And that's that's to me what's undergirding some of the social unrest. Yeah, you know, it just it, it seems like you know back when when I was in high school and college, uh, Jack Kemp was on the scene and, and was very big about uh, opportunity zones within cities. Uh, to revitalize cities, and, and there seem to be some success. Uh, and Democrats, by and large, have tended to oppose them uh, in favor of unionization, which hasn't borne out right. And and now we're really starting to see. I guess you've seen that even where I live in Macon, Georgia, in, in our downtown area, you've seen some good innovation. You've seen some businesses come in and set up shop in empty uh, storefronts. And now it just seems like th- that the rioters, many of them don't even live in these cities, are coming in and burning down the core infrastructure. And that's exactly right. They're, they're, they certainly don't live in a city. We found in Kenosha half of the individuals who were arrested, over 100 people, um, came from other towns, from Chicago, from California. Um, and, and, and DOJ is continuing to investigate um, those domestic um, ter- terrorists and uh, um, figuring out a way to best quell that. Um, but I think you're, you're extremely right. But you know what we need? We also need local leaders. You know, I'm sure in Macon, um, you had local leaders committed to it. You know, unfortunately, in places like Chicago, um, the commitment hasn't been there. If you're really commit- committed to doing the change, you know, you, you, you form those partnerships wherever they, wherever they are. Um, because you're focused on doing the work of the people. Um, and that's what we want to do. We want to partner with those local leaders, you know, um, and create solutions and opportunity. Um, that's why we're focused on opportunity right now. And that's, and that's been a focus um, before the pandemic, and it's going to continue to be a focus now. Now, with those opportunities, um, what 
can or what what is the White House considering uh, with some of these businesses uh, that that are now destroyed, small businesses? Uh, Where does the White House go in in terms of policy, particularly given the hostility from some of these people? And and I I, I know you're you're not on the political side of this. You're in the White House. But it does seem like uh, there is some political resistance from Democrats, lest the president get any credit for helping these businesses. It's literally always been political resistance. You know, that's why you're seeing. And it's not it's not all mayors. I've seen I've seen some local Democratic mayors do the right thing. Um, But in your major cities, they've certainly. Um, politicized it and um, haven't taken accountability um, for the work that they haven't done. You know, um, it's, it's funny, you know, um, they always say the first step towards healing is, is accountability, you know, looking in the mirror. Um, and and, if, and, and if, until you do that, you know, we're, we're not going to really get change. You know, they they want to spread blame for things that for the last 20 or 30 years have been under the democratic control. Um, what we want to do is just provide solutions um, and, and we do that by, by using existing funding. There's a lot of funding that goes out federally, um, but you haven't um, did what we've done, which is combine um, the different um, silos to kind of have a united plan. Um, and that's allowed for us to streamline funding, you know, kind of cut regulations and kind of focused on outcomes. Um, and so that's what we've done federally. But in order to actually have solutions, you have to have a local strategy because we are very sensitive to having a top-down approach. You know, um, Detroit's very different than New York. New York's very different than Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, and so all of these areas have um, have uniqueness to them, which requires local solutions. And so that's why we, we want to champion as a local partner, um, not like the individual who has all the solutions for every problem. Well, listen, uh, best of luck to you guys uh, as you advance this policy and – uh, getting the word out there on this, I, I just I feel so bad for these small business owners who committed to the yep. urban corridors and the urban revitalization yep. and saw it all go up in ashes. No, I, I totally agree, and that's that's why the president uh, worked with EDA and uh, has committed to um, Kenosha um, uh, millions of dollars to help those businesses rebuild. Um, we're we're continuing to try to work with Congress to get a deal done to create more access to capital. Um, for these businesses, um, some some of these businesses, like in a minority community, have always had a historic disparity with access to capital, and and we have solutions for that um, because we think that small businesses is the um, is the lifeblood of America, and, and it leads to the the most job creation we really needed in our country. Well, uh, God bless you for what you're doing. Keep up the good work. I appreciate you calling in. Thank you. Thanks so much, Eric. Absolutely, Jerron Smith. Uh, he is the uh, domestic policy advisor for the president. Uh, as law and order becomes an issue. And again, if you're just tuning in, if you heard part of the conversation, you can tell that this is an issue that's helping the president of the polling because the Biden campaign has announced this morning via the New York Times, no less, that they're going to start a nationwide ad campaign calling out the violence and riots. I got a question, though. Is the Biden campaign actually going to call them out by name or is it going to be a both sides thing? Now, and the reason I say that is because when the president calls out violence on both sides, the media demands he name names. They haven't done that for Joe Biden. And that is something I think that the president's campaign probably could pivot on uh, if they're up to it, uh, to point out that Joe Biden actually isn't calling out Antifa and these progressive agitators. It's not Trump supporters of the streets. Uh, Notice the media continues to amplify when Trump supporters show up to protect businesses or or you've got the some of the the right wing militia people show up They're They're actually not the ones who are burning down the cities. 
and yet the media would rather focus on them. Very telling where the media is on this. Hello there. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Get a load of this. Um, An American atheist group, this is from Discern, an American atheist group delivered a letter to a United States senator to request that he stop posting scripture to his official social media accounts arguing his actions are in violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. The Wisconsin-based Freedom From Religion Foundation asked Bill Cassidy, senator from Louisiana, uh, in a letter postmarked August 14th to, quote, refrain from posting messages that proselytize or endorse religion on your official government social media accounts. When a government official uses his elected office, including governmental platforms, such as an official Facebook page, to promote his personal religious beliefs, he violates the spirit of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Cassidy posts Bible verses on his account every Sunday, including this past weekend, he shared John 14.27. John 14.27 says... Peace I leave you with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. That was a bridge too far for the foundation, Freedom From Religion Foundation. It said a concerned Louisiana resident, probably named Karen, informed the group of Cassidy's practice claims the senator's actions alienates his constituents who are not Christian and regards them as political outsiders in their own community. By couching your sentiments in exclusively religious terms and by quoting exclusively from one religion's holy book, you unnecessarily exclude a significant portion of the community. Regardless of your intent, the social media posts sends the message to your minority religious and non-religious constituents that their participation in the political process is less valued than that of their Christian counterparts. Okay, I gotta ask you a question. If Bill Cassidy posts Republican talking points, does that not make it feel, make people who aren't, um, who aren't Republican, does that make them feel excluded? Should he, should he not do that? I mean, this this is this is this is cuckoo for cocoa puff territory here. Um, a, a, a atheist group not wanting a Christian senator to post uh, Bible verses. You know, Marco Rubio does this on a daily basis, and Rubio every day gets. I mean, man, you should see when Rubio posts uh, a scripture verse online. Uh, there is an absolute meltdown by angry people on the left. It really is stunning to me to see just how quickly people melt down by someone in public putting up a Bible verse. You know, there's that story. I I, I tell you this all the time, and I'm going to keep telling it because it's true. If you remember in Mark 5, uh, there's the, 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 the possessed men in the cemetery. And the one in particular is is possessed and, and badly and rushes to Jesus, and, and the demons cry out, Son of man, don't harm us. And Jesus asks the demon for its name, the possessed man, what's the name of the demon? And the demon replies back, Legion, for we are many. Wasn't just one demon, it was a bunch of demons, and, and they got into two men. 
and they asked Jesus not to harm them, and but instead cast them into a herd of pigs that were coming by. And so Jesus, even showing some level of compassion to the demons, he's, he's, he's giving the demons what they want. They want to be into the herd of pigs, so he casts them into the herd of pigs. And down into the lake they go, and they drown. Well, demons are eternal beings. They didn't die with the pigs. Where did they go? Where did the legion of demons go when the pigs died? I submit to you, they started social media. They just went through time, and they plopped out at the late 20th, early 21st century. And if you don't believe me, you go look at my Twitter feed. When I, If I were to tweet, the sky is blue, you would see Legion respond. It is insane, the level of crazy that comes out on my social media feed. Uh, it really, really is. Um, and and, and I'm, I'm telling you, there, there's something in the water right now. Here in the 21st century, there is clearly something in the water. Now, when we come back, uh, we got to do a little bit more on the state of play, where things look. Uh, and have you heard about the Jetpack Man? Jetpack Man at LAX? That's such a cool story. I want to talk about that a little bit. And we'll take your phone calls as well. 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Glad to have you with me this, what is today? It's Wednesday. We'll be back here in just a little bit. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show, all over the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of this here program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I'm actually going to go to the phones here in, in just one minute. I don't want Mike to have to keep waiting on the line uh, with what he wants to talk about. But before I do that, one matter of housekeeping that you're going to want to know about uh, I mentioned to you guys a couple of months ago, probably a month ago, uh, Archon Ready, they are a uh, gun trainer. They're probably the best in the country, really. Uh, they travel the country training SWAT teams, among others. And whenever they go to a state to train uh, SWAT teams and, and police officers and the like, they do civilian training. And, and I mentioned they were coming through Georgia. This is before I actually knew that a friend of mine was uh, connected to them. Uh, but I, I saw they were coming through Georgia because I follow them on Instagram. And my wife and I both signed up for their uh, Atlanta training in December. And it, it completely sold out. And so they reached out to me and, and said it, it appears that me mentioning it on the radio caused that to happen. And they were going to set up another one in Atlanta and because the first one got sold out. Now, I'm not getting paid or anything. I just I feel like I, you guys clearly wanted to know about it. And so I want you to know about it. They're coming back to Atlanta in January. I think it's the 23rd and 24th of January, my mom's birthday. Uh, and so if you're interested in this, they really are probably the best in the country. Definitely one of the best. They are uh, military, former special operators. Uh, genuinely just impressive stuff. You can go on uh, A-R-C-H-O-N, follow them on um, uh, on, uh, on 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 social media, and they're, they're impressive. What they do is super impressive, and they're also more, they've got more instructors per student ratio than any other gun school I can find in the country. They're, they're just, they're, they're impressive people. And when they come through and they train uh, police and SWAT and the like, they do civilian training. So they're looping back through again in January for another training. 
And if you're interested at all in participating with them, it's it's kind of pricey. It's a couple hundred bucks. You got to bring your guns and ammo with you. But again, the instruction is is you're not going to find better instruction. And if you're interested, I've got a link for you. Text data to 33777. Text data to 33777. And uh, you can find out. And this is an example of why I'm a bad businessman, because I'm sure I could probably get them to advertise. Um, but I just look, they're awesome. Uh, I, I have followed them for a while. I didn't realize that my buddy Nathan was connected with them. And uh, I just, I, I know what they're capable of doing and how good their training is. And with so many people buying guns in the country right now, uh, so many people uh, stocking up on ammo and the like, and a lot of new gun owners who aren't necessarily sure what they need to do. Uh, so they're doing their pistol course. And and let me let me just real quick, so that you have a sense of what they do. Man, I really, maybe, maybe Nathan, if you, if you listen to the podcast, may, maybe they need to advertise since I'm talking them up so much. <laughs> um, let me, let me tell you though, what they do. And again, my wife and I are going through the same thing in December um, that uh, they want to, it, it's a course designed for any level shooter wanting to improve marksmanship and speed. It establishes the foundations and fundamentals, uh, the work to create competency through a systemic, systematic, I'll use the word systematic and progressive approach. It culminates in dynamic movement drills with shooting your pistol. Now, what does that actually mean? Uh, they teach you the very basic fundamentals of how to use your gun and why you do certain things certain ways. Uh, they teach you the physics of it. And along the way, they build up to where you're actually doing moving shooter drills by the end of the class. Uh, which is what I'm excited about. It's two days. It is January 23rd and 24th. I'm, we're doing ours. I think it's, it's December 6th and 7th. We're doing pistol and uh, rifle. Uh, this one is modern pistol, and they may expand it to rifle. I'm not sure, but it is really good training, top-tier uh, top, top tier training. And if you're at all interested, text data to 33777. It's at going to be at South River Gun Club in Atlanta. I don't know where that is, but I hear very good things about it. Now, uh, that wasn't really an ad. I just, I, I love these guys. I know they do good work, and I know a lot of you are interested in top-tier instruction. You're not going to get better than this. Uh, Colleen Noir, the NRA, just went through their program as well and has been raving about it. Now, uh, let me go to the phones. Mike, I don't want to keep you waiting. Thanks for calling in, Mike. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Eric. Hey, uh, I listen to your show almost every morning when I can from work. And you were talking this morning about older Americans trending towards Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. And I just re just remembered a while back in the news, I think uh, Mr. Trump, our president, was talking about uh, temporary payroll tax cuts. Mm -hmm. And I think he might have even said if he was reelected that he was going to try to make it uh, permanent. And then there was some news circulated around about the payroll tax was what actually funded Social Security. So I was just wondering if that's true, uh, how we could maybe get uh, him to retract that statement. And well, it's not so could you clarify um, that? he does want a payroll tax holiday. Mike, good question. And, and by the way, don't get yourself in trouble by, by telling people you're listening at work. But thank you. <laughs> um, so hey, here here's I, the I thing. Listen. <laughs> I can listen to work at the same time. Good, good. You know, I, I claim I can. I'm not sure I can. But so here's the thing. 
Um, the president wasn't able to get the payroll tax cut through Congress. And at this point, I don't think anyone really buys the fact that that the payroll tax actually is what funds Social Security because we got so many IOUs in the system. Um, but you're right. Uh, the Biden campaign is pushing that the president wants to cut Social Security, and they've been pushing this message in heavy senior citizen states like Florida. The problem, of course, is that the president has has for years flat out refused to, to do any entitlement reform, but this is a token issue of the Democrats. What the polling suggests, though, and, and again, I realize a lot of people don't, and, and Mike, I'll, I'll let you listen on radio from there. Thank you for calling in. Um, what the polling suggests, and I realize... Be dismissive of the polling if you want, but the both sides do pay attention to what the polling suggests to try to uh, conform their message. And here's what the polling suggests. A couple of things. One, senior citizens are concerned about the president's competence in crisis relating to the virus. Two, they're really burned out on the last four years. Uh, they thought they were getting something other than what they got with President Trump. I was actually talking to a noted political figure last night uh, who was actually, he, he's upset with me to a degree for saying I would support the president in 2020. And he says, you know, he is what you always said he was. And my point to him is, yeah, I Donald Trump is what I always said he was. He is. But he's not Joe Biden. And it, let, let me step back for a moment and explain this to everybody. In 2016, I said I was I couldn't vote for Donald Trump. Character counts. He's not a nice guy. He's not a good guy. And he is a closet leftist who supports Planned Parenthood. And I voted third party. Well, he got elected. He didn't need my vote. Everybody told me that Hillary Clinton was going to get elected if I didn't support Donald Trump. I didn't support Donald Trump, and he still got elected. So so I, I'm, I've moved on from the... Uh, telling people how to vote sort of thing, because it, it clearly, I mean, I, I everybody was shocked. Even the president and his team were shocked. And don't tell me they weren't shocked because I've talked to them and I know the inside story of just how shocked they were when the Secret Service showed up and declared him president-elect. They didn't want to let him in the door. But he's actually gotten us a lot of policies that I do like. He said nice things about Planned Parenthood on the campaign trail, and he has worked ever since to defund them. Through executive orders, he's deprived them of funding, and it has hurt Planned Parenthood. He's been very pro-life. He's done a very good job with judges. He's done a very good job with deregulation. He got us out of the Iran deal. He got us out of the, the Paris Accord. He moved the embassy to Jerusalem. There are a lot of things about the president I don't like. Character counts. And I can take five positions on Donald Trump in a day, and, and everyone tells me that's very typical for people who are supporting the president don't particularly care for some of his antics. And that seems to be most people who are supporting him. He's got some diehard people who will never admit he does anything wrong or they just don't want to admit it publicly and privately. They will. And there are people who work for the president who despise him, who you talk to privately, publicly. They're out there attacking the so-called never Trumpers and the like. And, and, and publicly they are and privately they're attacking him, too. They say he's an idiot and all sorts of stuff. But here's the thing. Um, I voted for third party in 2016 and he still got elected. And the third party guy I voted for turned out to be a brain biblical donkey. And the president got elected, and he actually did some very decent things in office. And I'm not going to sit home. I'm not going to sit it out. I'm not going to vote third party again. I tried that last time, and look what happened. I'm certainly not going to vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Look, look at the policies they would pursue. They would just embolden the leftists who have been burning down America. 
So that leaves me with the choice, uh, Donald Trump or, or nobody. And, and I'm, I'm going to vote for, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump in 2020. I, I, I don't care for the guy personally in a lot of ways. He, by the way, he's a very funny person. We have talked on the phone multiple times, including very recently. And he is a, a very humorous person and we get along fine. Uh, he calls me at home on occasion and uh, we do get along just fine. And, and he knows what I think. Uh, he, he knows I wish he wouldn't tweet the way he does. He, he knows I wish he would live his life slightly differently. Uh, and, but he also knows that uh, he can count on me for my vote because he's delivered by and large policies that I like with some things I don't like. I wish he'd get rid of Peter Navarro. I wish he'd get rid of tariffs. I, w- I wish he'd do stuff like that. I wish he'd be more committed to free trade. I am deeply committed to free trade. But judges, deregulation, life, foreign policy with the Paris Accord, with the Israel embassy, with the peace deal between Israel and the UAE that you will note that no one in the media likes to talk about, uh, dealing with Iran, I, I find that the president of the United States has done far more than I ever expected him to do, and so I will give him my vote in November. I wish there was someone else running, frankly. I'll be very honest with you. I, I wish there's somebody else running. I wish there was someone running who I could look to my point to from my kids and say, you know what? You can read that guy on Twitter. You can follow that guy on Twitter. That that guy is is a role model for you. I realize Republicans have soured on George W. Bush, but the fact of the matter is George W. Bush is a man of good character. He is a very nice guy, and he's someone you can point to to your kids and say, be like that guy. You can't really do that with Donald Trump, who's on his third wife with whom he had an affair with a porn star while she was pregnant. You, you just can't do that. That That's the reality of it. And, and it makes some of you mad for me to point that out, but it's true. But would I rather Donald Trump in the White House or Joe Biden? At the end of the day, it does become that level of a decision for me at this point, having gone third party in 2016 and seen how that worked out. And so between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, I'm going to go with Donald Trump uh, six days a week and multiple times on Sunday. Why? Because Donald Trump is not going to raise my taxes and Joe Biden will. Donald Trump is not going to uh, embolden and give a win to the left and, and who are burning down Kenosha, Wisconsin. Joe Biden will. Donald Trump is not going to appoint pro-abortion judges to the Supreme Court, and Joe Biden will. Donald Trump is not going to expand regulation in this country and harm small businesses, and Joe Biden will. Donald Trump is not going to put the United States back into uh, sticky diplomatic solutions for global warming and climate change that ultimately undermine the American economy, and Joe Biden will. At the end of the day, it is a choice between two deeply flawed men, one of whom is a very nice guy with very bad policies, and one of whom isn't a great guy, but with some pretty good policies. And I'm going to go with the guy I don't particularly care for, who has the policies I like, versus the guy who I actually think is a very nice guy, with the policies that I think are terrible for the country. that That's it. Feel free to disagree with me. You are perfectly fine to disagree. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. The fact of the matter is, though, that I think there is a real choice in November. And I wake up, and there are days I look at the president's Twitter feed, and I'm like, I'm just, I'm, I got to get my nails done on election day. I, I, I'm not going to be able to go vote. And then there are days I wake up and I realize You've got left-wing agitators marching around the country, burning down cities, and these people don't need to win. And they win by voting for Joe Biden. 
And these people who are burning down America need to be beat back. And the way you beat them back is not with your fist, but with the ballot box by voting for someone like Donald Trump and repudiating everything these radical leftists stand for by doubling down in support of the president. And by God, that's exactly what I'm going to go do. The phone number here is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Well, scandal, scandal. Uh, Joe Rogan is uh, the most famous podcaster on planet Earth, it seems. Uh, And he has cut a a $100 million deal with Spotify, something ridiculous. And there are actually arguments that he's undervalued. It was just a a, a gobsmacking amount of money for a podcaster. He does these long-form conversations with people. uh, And and now he's moved his podcast where he was already making a ton of money. He's moved it over to Spotify uh, to kick off exclusive uh, content. Essentially, podcasting is becoming the new radio where you've got to tune to a particular channel to to get the particular content you want. In this case, you got to pay uh, for that content. I, I don't know that it will work, but God bless him for trying. He, he's a pioneer in the industry uh, doing that sort of stuff. Um, but it, it, one of the things that Joe Rogan has done in the past is he's interviewed controversial people like Alex Jones, like Milo, Milo Yiannopoulos and, and others. And, uh, well, he has, uh, well, Spotify has apparently made those interviews go down the memory hole and people are wondering why, why, why are you uh, doing that? Why, why are you uh, rushing out the door uh, and, and making those things sort of disappear? And of course, part of that is an attack on Joe Rogan. But part of it is also an attack on these groups. Now, listen, I'm I'm not an Alex Jones fan, man. That I can't stand that guy, and and I have limited respect, frankly. I'll be very honest with you. I I have to remember to be humble, and understand that that there are people who have gone down that rabbit hole who listen to Alex Jones, and it it drives me insane. And if if they knew. I mean that the guy was a it was a leftist and and I just I'm still convinced he's just doing an act and it just kind of drives me crazy. Nonetheless, uh here we are and he, he those things have just disappeared. And I'm I'm what I'm interested in and the reason I bring this up is the media pointing this out and suggesting essentially that Joe Rogan has somehow sold out because he's not willing to put up those controversial things or that Spotify is somehow ashamed of him. And, you know, originally he said nothing was going to change. And it looks like that's not actually the case. And it looks like things are actually changed. Uh, And it, it looks very much like he's going to be toned down, but he's got a chance to prove it. And that's what the media misses. He's got a chance to prove it. You know, one of one of the alluring things about me doing this program, one of the alluring things about Joe, Joe Rogan doing his podcast is, is you don't have to listen. Increasingly, though, it is very hard for someone like him or someone like me or many others to be able to get access to a TV network, to be able to have the conversations we would like to have and do the things we, we would like to do. 
Um, I, I frankly, I think uh, that that CNN's HLN network could use someone like me to to, to stir up the controversy and and the pot and have some center right conversations as opposed to the left wing drivel. You always get on stuff like that, but you're not going to hear stuff like that uh, because in the CNN bubble, they cater to everyone on the left. They, they would never do something like that. Uh, and if they did, you would have left-wing agitators led by Media Matters trying to burn them down. I have very deliberately and slowly built this program. I, frankly, i got to get more advertisers for it. But I've very deliberately built it slowly so that I own 100% of it. And I give it this show away. No station has to pay me. Whatever radio station you're listening to me on is not paying me for this content. And they don't have to do uh, affidavits. A normal syndicated radio show, you got to fill out an affidavit every week certifying that the advertisements for that show have run. Now, I've got ads, but they don't have to run them. I need more ads, need more advertisers. Uh, but the local stations, if they got a preempt for breaking news or weather or something, they don't have to run them. And I've made it very hard for cancel culture to come after me. And I've done so deliberately and thoughtfully. And, and frankly, I, I don't think I'm someone that cancel culture would come for, except for the fact of my views on on traditionalism and Christianity and, and the alphabet gang and what I think of transgenderism and, and the like. They'll come for me eventually for that. But it becomes difficult because I've built up direct relationship with advertisers and built up direct relationships with uh, the, the stations that air the program. So it makes it harder for them. And it would be very easy for them to come to a CNN or, frankly, even a Fox or someone else uh, and saber rattle against someone like me or Joe Rogan. And that is increasingly why we intend to control our, our media, our medium, our content, and go where we want, where people can try to find us and listen. You can always go to theresurgent.com and listen to the live stream there if you can't get one of the local radio stations. Uh, and the fact that the media is now ginning up this sort of controversy on Joe Rogan kind of shows his original business model was probably the better one than Spotify, because if he doesn't have some of these controversial people come on, they're going to accuse him of selling out, and it's going to look very much like he has. Uh, but it's it's definitely a story worth paying attention to in radio and the like as, as the guy goes out and pioneers this with a major deal. It's like Howard Stern leaving terrestrial radio for Sirius XM in the day. This is kind of Joe Rogan. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number here is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, you know, we got Labor Day coming up this weekend, and one of the major concerns uh, among the governor's team, the public health advisors and all, is, is that people let their guard down a little bit, and, and very much like after Memorial Day. And, well... I uh, got an email the other day from a friend of mine and said, you know, you should have on uh, Dr. Dean Burke, who's in the state Senate uh, from down in Bainbridge. And you know what? I figured that would be a great idea to talk about this. He actually is a doctor and kind of knows what he's talking about. He also uh, went to Mercer School of Medicine, uh, where I went, my alma mater for undergrad and for law school. Uh, I hope that he's finished paying off his student loans. Maybe one day I'll finish paying off mine. I don't even practice law anymore. Welcome to the program, Senator. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm great. Uh, so I'm I, I'm I'm interested to get you on to talk about this Chamber of, of Commerce, I guess, affiliated study that came out about the spread of the virus in Georgia after Memorial Day. And it had been the governor's chief concern that people would let their guard down. And sure enough, it looks like that's what happened. And now with Memorial Day coming up, I know you're you're keeping an eye on this stuff and figured it'd be perfect to talk to you. 
Yeah, I mean, I I think the 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 study that you're talking about, the press release that came out, uh, I guess yesterday, uh, from Dr. Amber Smitke, who ha- also has a little Mercer tie, by the yeah. way, um, talking about the the number of cases that spiked a couple of weeks after uh, Memorial Day, uh, and uh, we down in South Georgia uh, uh, had our big spike after. Fourth of July, uh, actually, uh, is not in her report, but uh, ours was a little bit later, but uh, it, during August. And again, if you just look at the graphs, it, it does seem to have a tie-in. Uh, I don't, I don't, you know. Right. I'm a physician and uh, I'm not an immunologist, uh, but uh, it just makes common sense that when you have people getting together socially more because of the holiday weekends that, that there is going to be more spread. So I, I think it's well worth reminding Georgians that um, our numbers are better, but it's very fragile. And I think if we don't uh, use precautions, we could very well be uh, spiking again in, in another two to four weeks. Well, let me talk to you a little more, just given your medical background here. Have you encountered uh, COVID-19 patients? Yeah, I'm the chief medical officer of a small rural hospital in Bainbridge, Georgia, and uh, we have uh, had COVID patients uh, every day since this started uh, back in March, uh, and uh, our numbers spiked probably about three weeks ago, and, and truly we were we were full and on diversion where we were having to refer people out, and that was a challenge because most places were full as well in my region, so uh, we've... Uh, we, we're dealing with this every day in our facility. Now, I'm I'm I, I want to ask you a question. And you know, having gone to law school, you know, they always tell you don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. And I I, I generally don't know the answer to, to this. I I would very much love to hear your candid take on the, the the stories you hear out there that circulate so frequently now that this is all overblown. It's not really real. Um, it, hardly anyone gets it. It's not very infectious. It's just like the flu. Uh, being your your medical background and be being in charge of the hospital, what is your what's your view on that? Well, uh, you know, it is a virus and it is more infectious than the than the average flu that that we run into. Uh, it it is real. Uh, people are dying. Uh, I think it'll be uh, interesting to a year or two from now to uh, look back at. Uh, uh, funeral homes, uh, I, and I'm not read this anywhere, but I, I know just, I, you know, we have our small local papers now uh, that, that disappeared in metro areas, but, but you know, we, we get obituaries, and I can promise you the funeral homes have been much, much busier in southwest Georgia over the past six months than they're normal, uh, and I have no doubt that it's related to, to COVID. Uh, so, uh, it is real. Now, it's certainly true that the, the older you are and the sicker you are, the higher risk you are of, of dying from the disease. Uh, and, uh, you know, that that's makes perfect sense, uh, just like with the flu. Uh, you know, if you get the flu right. and you've got five medical problems, you're more likely to die from it than a, you know, healthy 20-year-old. Uh, but, but no, I, there is no doubt that this is a, a real health problem. And our health system, you know, in a couple of different episodes since this started have been on, you know, very, very close to being overwhelmed. So uh, uh, it is real. 
Well, so you mentioned being close to being overwhelmed, and, and I, I'm looking now at the Department of Public Health website, and it, it does show that uh, Grady, Decatur, Seminole, Miller County down in uh, southwest Georgia, it looks like it, they're considered a hot spot right now on the heat map for the Department of Public Health. Do you have any sense of, of why that part of the state is, it looks like, kind of like you've got the, the rural uh, southeastern part of the state, the Emanuel County area, also a hot spot right now. And and I've heard some people say it's farms. Some people say it's it's just people passing through. Do you have any sense of what it is? Well, I don't think anybody will be able to be definitive with, with what it is. It's, it's probably a combination of factors. I, you know, I think the the uh, there is a lot of uh, cynicism about uh, the the disease and and. Uh, what, what needs to be done to, to protect it in, in the, uh, the rural areas. Uh, uh, we're kind of uh, used to kind of getting getting along by ourselves out here in rural Georgia, and, and so the people that live here tend to be very independent and don't like people telling them what to do. Uh, <laughs> that's just part of the culture, uh, which, of course, uh, that's why I'm here. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, that being said, the, the – these areas uh, in rural Georgia that you're talking about also have a very high incidence of, of unhealthy people. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we, we've got uh, a, a love for fried catfish and, and fried chicken. Uh, we have Don't a lot we all? of uh, hypertension and strokes and heart disease. Uh, and uh, so the, the other uh, issues are, are, you know, frequently just, just cultural you know we love a family reunion and uh our our churches are important and we know that's been a a super spreader uh place uh, in a lot of the state so uh, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of variables there but it's it's not not surprising well, you know, so for those who are just tuning in, I'm talking to, to Senator Dean Burke uh, from down in southwest Georgia, who's also a doctor. I would be remiss if I didn't specifically talk to you about something other than the virus, and that is it's from people that I talked to, including the governor, uh, there's still people digging out from when Hurricane Michael blew through now over well past, uh, was it two years ago now, it seems like. Uh, or yeah. a year ago, just just deep destruction down there, and I've have not been. It's been years since I've been down to Thomasville. I got a buddy of mine from law school practices down there, and just never get down there. And well, what two years removed from this now? What's the situation like economically with farms down there? Well, the ag community is still under a, a lot of stress, and and that's a very complex thing that started before the hurricane. You know, the commodity prices have been in a I would call a depression probably for the last five or six years. Uh, and, you know, it's complex from the standpoint of trade and, and farmers will tell you they're their own worst enemy. You know, they tend to, to, to overplant when the, the prices are good and then that drives the prices down. And so that, you know, it's, it's always a roller coaster, the, the ag economy. But, uh, you know, some of the trade agreements uh, have, have been a challenge, although, you know, most of those uh, things have been, you know, the president's been very good at, at trying to provide uh, extra relief to the ones that might be hurt by the, the trade agreement. So they're, they're doing, a, uh, I think, a good job. But overall, the ag com, uh, uh, economy is still uh, depressed, and the, the, the storm was just, you know, kind of icing on the cake of a very bad problem. Uh, uh, but, but, you know, again, the, the people down here are survivors. Uh, 
our community, in particular in Bainbridge uh, and a couple of other counties I represent, uh, Coquit County, Thomas County, obviously where Thomasville is, mm-hmm. uh, Seminole County, uh, they have uh, increased their diversity from the, you know manufacturing and have had some good success with with new. Uh, opportunities and so you know most people in my neck of the woods are optimistic about the future uh, you know uh, I think that this virus will actually increase the economic viability of uh, rural communities because more and more people realize they don't want to be in a crowded city uh, so right. I, I do think in the next 10 years we'll see a, a shift from this pandemic that that favors rural communities I, I hope so. I mean, y'all are so close to Tallahassee. I can't understand anybody want to live in Tallahassee anyway. So move them up to Southwest Georgia and, and make them Georgia. Absolutely. Work for me. <laughs> we're open for business as our economic developer always says. We're open for business in Bainbridge. Excellent. Listen, Senator, thank you so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. Uh, best of luck to you down there as y'all continue to deal with the virus. All right. Great to talk to you, Eric. You too. Uh, Senator Dean Burke, a uh, state senator from Southwest Georgia, a doctor down there, head of the hospital in Bainbridge. Uh, I, I was not going to gonna do do my sad little plea to get me on there. There's a, there is a talk station down there I would like to be on, um, but I, I figure I wouldn't, wouldn't make that pitch to him here. Uh, here's what I'm going to do. We got some phone calls. I, I want to take your phone calls, but I also need to take a commercial break. And before I do that, I need to tell you that this hour of the program is brought to you by Dynamic Money. Dynamic Money actually is my financial advisor. He actually, Chris Burns, who also fills in for me, actually truly is, although we use Cliff in his office. And the reason is because Chris and I are friends as well. And it it takes us forever to do budgeting. Cliff is awesome. Uh, The whole team there is awesome. Now, why do you need a financial advisor? Well, first of all, here's what you need to know. You can, there are a lot of financial firms out there that will help you with your 401k and stuff. Many of them are commission-based and there's nothing wrong with it, but you're always kind of questioning, are they selling me this because it makes them money or because it's good for me? Uh, They don't sell you anything at Dynamic Money. They are 100% fee. So you pay them and then they act as your primary care physician for your finances. They look at your life insurance. They look at your mortgage. They look at your car insurance. They look at your homeowner's insurance. They look at your debts. They look at your 401k. They look at your other savings and investments and they help you readjust, rearrange and, and, and find better rates on insurance. They can refer you to someone to refinance your house, get some cash out to pay off credit cards, start building your savings, build an emergency reserve. They've done all this with, with my wife and me. I, I realize I, I'm, I'm a terrible businessman. I don't have good business sense. I just want to show up on the radio and and talk. And having a partner like that in the life of my wife and me to be able to help us has been tremendous. Uh, They do manage our 401k. Uh, They've been very, very good about managing our 401k and keeping us up to date on changes they would like to make, changes they want us to make with with part of my 401k that, that they don't have access to through my company. And I just, I, I think the world of them. Uh, I have been using them now for, gosh, oh, well over a year, longer than this radio show has been on the air. It was great that they stepped up to help me get off the ground. Uh, but they can help you. It doesn't. They're based in Atlanta. It doesn't matter where you are nationwide. Dynamic Money can help you. Uh, in fact, I got a friend of mine who listens to the program in North Carolina who has started working with Cliff at Dynamic Money as well uh, and is already seeing, uh, he's a small business owner, and is already seeing them help him tremendously in restructuring debts to be able to help his family and his business. Uh, so go to dynamicmoney.com. That's their website, dynamicmoney.com. And if you need 401k help, whatever, but also listen to me, if you're, if you're a business owner and you have retirement plans for your business, 
they're willing to come down wherever you are and talk to your employees about 401ks, particularly all the market turmoil. People are worried about a market crash, all that sort of stuff. They're very good at explaining that to your employees. Uh, you don't have to use them to manage 401ks, but they'll come educate your employees. Uh, value add for your employees to use a group like Dynamic Money. DynamicMoney.com is the website, and thanks very much to them for sponsoring the show. Well, assuming the nation makes it to October 30th, New Mandalorian episodes come out. Yay. Milan comes out, what, uh, Friday. Uh, Milan comes out on Disney Plus for for an added fee if you want to watch it. Uh, I'm excited for Milan. Now, I don't quite view it as Chinese propaganda, but The Mandalorian, October 30th. Now, to the phones we go. Greg, calling from Marietta. You're going to be next. Welcome. Hey, Eric. Uh, Hi there. We're a listener, and uh, since I've been home since March and haven't been on a plane, I have to thank my wife for listening to you when I work from home. Excellent. Uh, you know, with I got kids uh, now in high school and I'm looking toward college selection. And as a conservative Christian, I'm really beginning to doubt the ability to send them to a public state college, which hits me mm-hmm. in the wallet. I have a friend of the family who has to rename, remain nameless, but is a captain on a NCAA team and is a conservative Christian and refuses to take a knee, does not want to sign a letter to the AD from fellow teammates and coaches, and is paying the price for it. Uh, The family may have to lawyer up, uh, may have to change schools and lose scholarship, and this is happening across multiple friends with kids in college. The, The woke left will not let you have a dissenting opinion, and it is affecting kids in college. It is amazing right. to see the lack of letting people have a different opinion. I mean, to the point coaches have told her she's uneducated because her parents and grandparents served in the military and she refuses to kneel. Jeez. You know, you're not alone. I, I've heard some of these horror stories as well. Um, and, and not just the pressure on, on wokeness, also the uh, LGBTQ agenda and, and having to embrace that and uh, the indoctrination. I'm, I'm pushing my kids. Basically, I, I've, my, my oldest child is taking the position. Now, she's only, she just turned 15. She's in ninth grade. And she's taking the worldview of she wants to aim for Harvard and presume she's not actually going to go to a place like that. But if she can get in there, she can get in anywhere. I'm pushing her on some of the the, the conservatives. Like, you know, I'm in the PCA and Covenant College, which is just up the road from us. Uh, I know some yeah. of the professors there. Uh, and, and they got a beautiful campus. Uh, you know, I went to Mercer. Um, I'm still paying for my law school loans. I don't, I don't know that she's, she probably needs to move a little way away from home. I don't know of any public institutions though, right now that I would feel comfortable sending my kids to even, even the university of Georgia. I will say this, the, 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 the contrary thing here is I hear from a lot of people that if, if you do send them to a large public institution, you've grounded them in church. Uh, they know what they believe. They've gone to a good high school. Uh, that they will go with friends and, and kind of cluster up themselves. But I'm still just not sure it's worth it. Um, the, the indoctrination that to, goes on in some of these places. Uh, I know so many kids yeah. who go off to college and lose their faith um, under pressure, and, and they eventually leave and find it again. But it really does bother me with my kids. And we've been so bad in the last several months of having our kids. I mean, we hadn't been able to be in church and youth group and stuff like that. 
just just the wandering souls. And yeah, I'm I hear you, man. And it's it's a scary time to particularly be someone of faith in, in the public square right now. You have to rely on uh, FCA and um, Baptist Student Union and other religious, uh, you know, Wesleyan, uh, who my wife was in with in school. Uh, you have to rely on those organizations, um, Catholic organizations, uh, the, the, the new people. We know the priest running the Catholic Center at UGA now, and um, kudos to those people that are holding the line. But when you get into class, um, especially at a smaller school, it's very yeah. tough. I think you're right. You have to go larger school, and we are looking at places we would have never thought of before. And I'm in your boat. I have a ninth grader. Uh, uh, we're beginning yeah. to look at schools. God, you know, so, can I just, Greg? I'm I'm going to make you a captain. You, you called in, and and this is something we're thinking about right now. Man, the amount of stress that got, my my ninth grader is starting to stress about this. I'm like, live your life and just do well, and you'll be fine. And she's like, well, what about money? What about loans? Where do I go? What do I do? And and I'm just, man, the, the amount of stress uh, under about picking colleges and stuff. And I, I, I'm, I'm thinking we may need to become Catholic and I can just stick her in a convent and problem solve, but I don't <laughs> think she's going for that. <laughs> well, for my, for my son, my dream is a service Academy, which I doubt will ever happen. Um, West point or, or Annapolis, I think, uh, would be a great choice, but I don't know if that will happen. That's a dream. Mm-hmm. And, and that may not be what he wants. But, yeah, I, um, I, my my son would go I, to a service academy if there was one for video games. Uh, same boat. Agree with you. <laughs> um, God bless our our teachers. Um, our public school teachers in our community are trying so hard. We made the decision due to educational needs to put our kids in private school, Christian private school, mm-hmm. and that has been a lifesaver for us. Yeah, and we are so thankful for where we're at. Us too. Well, Greg, look, uh, you got a call. Uh, look, thank you so much for calling in. I appreciate it very much. <laughs> yeah, you have a good day. Uh, you know, it, it is true, and, and he mentions Christian private school. We've got our kids in a Christian private school that's classical education, and my my oldest frets every day is is this gonna is this gonna impact me with college? She wants to go to Harvard. She wants to go to Oxford. She she is deeply ambitious. Um, she really needs to be an interior designer, a fashion designer. She's got an impressive art and design skills, but nonetheless, she wants the best. Uh, if my girl wants the best, I'm going to try to help her get it. Uh, by the way, uh, pivot back to dynamic money, them helping us build a plan uh, and and me needing more advertisers on this program uh, so I can get it in national syndication and actually up the income. But um, it is a difficult struggle right now for parents, uh, particularly people of faith in this country, when the world is so rapidly, rapidly uh, turning against people of faith. And, and it, you know, this is why I really fundamentally believe there is something spiritual going on. And I realize if you're not a person of faith, you kind of roll your eyes at that. But there is something in the spiritual waters of this country right now uh, that is deeply poisonous. And between the collapse of families and everything else, it, it, it's, I mean, you're, you're reading that you're, you're living out Romans one in society right now, and it is not a good place to be. Uh, and it's particularly for people of faith walking through this country right now, a whole lot of people with the coexist bumper stickers really don't want to coexist with you unless you believe everything they already believe. The tolerance crowd turns out to be deeply intolerant after all. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show, all over the place, particularly here in Georgia. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 
877-973-7425. This hour of the program is brought to you by True Precision. True-Precision.com is their website. I mentioned earlier in the program that uh, gun sales in August are yet again at record highs year over year. More guns bought this August than any other August. Uh, People are just buying guns, and overwhelmingly, it is new gun owners. Well, with so many people buying guns, you want to distinguish your gun from everybody else's gun, and the best way to do it is to go to a gunsmith that is also a serious artist, and you want to go to True Precision because I've got my concealed carry from True Precision, and they're awesome guns. Uh, They make the barrels. They make the slides. They make triggers. uh, You can do serious upgrades to your gun. Glock, SIG, M&P, go check them out. True-Precision.com is their website. Uh, I I have said this before. I will say it again. I'll I'll say it constantly. Every single time I take my Glock 43X uh, that I work with True Precision to put together, when I take it to the gun range, everybody wants to know where I got it. And it's a Glock 43X, but it's been modified by True Precision in a way you can do yours. Uh, we picked out a barrel together. We picked out the slide. Uh, we did better sights, everything. Y'all, they do incredible work. If you want to update, upgrade, improve your gun, they've even got really good triggers. Go to True Precision. True-Precision.com is their website. True-Precision.com. If you buy their slides and barrels and, and the like online, and you use Eric, E-R-I-C-K, at checkout. You got a little checkout box, and you put Eric in, E-R-I-C-K, you get 10% off. It's worth it. True-Precision.com. Go there now. Thank you to them for sponsoring the program. Let's get to the data that's out there. I have gotten a lot of questions about this, and I want to be really, really frank with everybody here. Uh, the idea that the election is going to be stolen by mail is bull beep. I, I just, you you need to know that the idea that the election is going to be stolen by mail is flat out irresponsible rhetoric coming mostly from the right. And if it makes you mad for me to say it, suck it up, buttercup, because I'm telling you the truth. And I want to walk you through this. Uh, it is a flat out lie to say the election is going to be stolen by mail. And I can tell you the, the left is setting them up uh, themselves up for heartbreak here uh, in doing this because you, you you may very well see on election night the president dominate. And then it, it gives the Republicans every right to question it as the vote total dwindles when mailing ballots come in. My preferred rule is that votes should be counted if they come in by election day. If you're not responsible enough to get your absentee ballot in the mail to make sure it comes in by election day, to heck with you. Your vote should not count if you're that not that responsible. Uh, your ballot should be in. And for people on the left who say that it is some government conspiracy to slow down the mail, well, get your ballot in, uh, request it now, and go on and mail it back. Don't wait until the last minute. Stop procrastinating when your democracy is at stake. You got this high-minded rhetoric. Oh, you got to throw Donald Trump out, and then you're going to wait until the day before to cast your ballot, and you're going to hold up the election in the process. That's on you. That's not on the rest of us. Your ballot shouldn't count if it's not at the board of elections by election day. And if you think the post office is going to slow it down, one, you're wrong, and two, get it now. I want to explain why and how this works. And how though it is possible to steal the election, it is not going to happen. It is improbable it is going to happen. But I I need to throw something out there to begin with. 
If Donald Trump is reelected president of the United States, a significant vocal minority of Biden supporters are going to burn this country to the ground, convinced the Russians did it again because of irresponsible media coverage of the last four years. And the media will own the flames and will deny any responsibility. Because for four years, the media has peddled the lie that the Russians stole the election, which in and of itself is bull crap. And I'm going to say that. I can say that on radio. It's, it's, it is a lie to say the Russians stole the election. I've read the reports, people. The Russians did not steal the election. The Russians wanted to sow discord. The Russians did want to help the president because they decided they hated Hillary Clinton. They did not persuade people. They spent 20-some-odd thousand dollars on Facebook. That wasn't enough to persuade enough people. They don't understand the Electoral College. And, you know, the Electoral College is actually a saving grace and the very reason why you're not going to steal the election. Tell me, tell me, please, which combination of states must you steal in order to win the Electoral College? Go on. The problem is it becomes very hard. Why? Because you have 50 states with 50 voting systems. That's one of the geniuses of the Electoral College, in addition to having to have candidates uh, balance out the need for, for more rural states and urban states together to build a coalition, you've also got to map out a path to 270 Electoral College votes through 50 different voting systems. The, the voting deadlines are different. The receipt of absentee ballots are different. The processing of the ballots are different. Uh, the way they count the ballots are different. The machines they use are different. You got to do all these things. It actually helps us. It's why the Russians did not steal 2016 and why 2020 is not going to be stolen. But you know and I know that if your candidate doesn't win, you're going to want to believe the election was stolen so that you sleep well at night, smug in the satisfaction that your candidate actually won and was robbed. Because why hang your hat on the truth when the lie lets you sleep well and lets you be mad at the other side? When you vote in this country, you can show up on election day and vote. Or in some states like Oregon, Utah, and a few others, you cast a ballot. Those states like Oregon, let, let's focus on Oregon for a minute as Portland burns down. By the way, you know the new spin out there is not that, that that Republicans saying Portland is burning. Actually, it's only a few buildings. It's not really the whole city. Good Lord. But let's focus on Oregon for a minute. Oregon's done mail-in balloting for a while. You know what? There There is no instance of vote fraud there. You don't have widespread vote fraud. Now, now here's, let, let me be careful here. There are always voter irregularities, and there are always bad people. And you will find people who do try to do bad things in the election. The problem is you'll never find enough. And what's going to happen, particularly, let's say Joe Biden wins, because this is really starting to piss me off with my own side right now. Joe Biden wins the election. And by the way, if the polling lines continue, Joe Biden is going to win. The, the trend lines are good for the president. I think if the election were held today, he'd win. But Joe Biden has an edge. But if Joe Biden wins, worst case scenario, Joe Biden wins, you're going to have 15, 20 reports of nefariousness at various polling locations in the country. And Republicans will say, oh, those 15, they stole the election. It won't be enough to matter, but Republicans will refuse to accept it and they'll start behaving just like the Antifa jerks in the street. But the same thing true with, with Donald Trump. If Donald Trump wins re-election, 
Uh, Democrats will also hang their hat on the, those those small uh, acts and say, oh, proof, proof, proof. I mean, there was a, a mailman in Chicago that got arrested, indicted, I think he's going to jail for tearing up ballots of people he suspected were Republicans. And, oh, see, they're going to steal the election. They're going to do that. The post office is going to do this. It, it's not enough. And that's what you need to understand. We're talking about an election where 100 million people are going to participate, spread through 50 states, through 50 voting systems, some on election day, some by mail, it's going to be really hard to steal it. It is improbable that it's going to happen, and not a one of you is going to care if your side loses, and that's what makes me mad. Uh, you would rather believe the lie than believe the truth when your guy loses, and it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, and that sort of stuff is what's tearing this country apart right now because you would rather believe the lie than the truth. The truth of the matter is, yes, it is possible to steal the election through mail-in balloting. The truth is also, it is highly improbable. You first have to decide which are the actual true swing states. You have to use detailed, copious amounts of polling to be able to tell you that. And then you have to coordinate an activity with a massive number of people who aren't on TikTok, aren't on Twitter, aren't on Facebook, and can keep a secret. And no one in the United States is able to keep a secret anymore in this country. Someone would rat them out. Someone would brag about it. Someone would spill the beans. And you can't do that in this country. The Russians can't do it. The Russians cannot bring in operatives and try to steal people's ballots. Now, would I prefer everyone show up on election day? Yes. Will there be irregularities? Absolutely. There are always irregularities. How do I know these things? I was an elections lawyer. I dealt with absentee balloting irregularities before. I know this is going to happen. It won't be enough, but you will look at these stories and say, oh, that was enough to steal the election. Why are there irregularities with the balloting? Well, there will be occasions where you will find activists who show up in certain states and request people's ballots and throw them away instead of taking them back or putting them in the mailbox because that's what dirty people do. And there are dirty people in politics. There will be instances where people forget to sign their absentee ballot and their ballot gets rejected for failure to sign the ballot. And there will be a court fight over that. And Democratic judges will say accept them and Republican judges will say don't accept them. And the Supreme Court will ultimately rule that you have to go with what the law said. And if the law said sign them, then you got to accept them. And in states that require a signature or a rejection, they're, they're accepted unless they have a signature. And in states that don't, well, then you get to go through. You got to know the laws of the 50 states. You've got to know the patterns and practice of how to handle the ballots in the 50 states. You've got to know whether or not you can collect them. And here's the thing. Let's talk about ballot harvesting in this regard. Ballot harvesting is where someone shows up at your door who you do not know who is not your relative and says, I know you got a ballot. I will take it to the polls for you. Do you know where ballot harvesting exists? In states that Donald Trump isn't going to win if Jesus Christ himself came back and campaigned for him. So don't tell me that ballot harvesting is going to commit fraud. Donald Trump's not winning those states anyway. It has nothing to do with voter regularities. It has to do with those far-left states like California. The president, if Jesus Christ came back today and campaigned for Donald Trump, not that he would, but if he did, California would still reject Donald Trump just like they've rejected Jesus. That's just the reality. The states where the mail-in balloting has ballot harvesting, those are left-wing states to begin with. There are states like Florida, that will allow people to do absentee balloting that won't allow ballot harvesting that the president says he's perfectly fine with. And the Democrats are fine with it too. 
This is all voter agitation to give you a sense of grievance, and it is really damn irresponsible by both parties doing it. It is completely irresponsible for both parties to be telling you that the election could be stolen with disruption and mail-in balloting. And it is notable to me that the media is willing to amplify the talking points of the left on this and undermine the integrity of the post office and cast dispersions on the post office because Donald Trump's in charge of it when the post office is only implementing the savings plan that the Obama administration told them to do. But the media doesn't care about that because the media is totally on Joe Biden's side. It is deeply irresponsible, though, for Republican politicians to come out and say that, oh, they're going to steal it with mail-in balloting. They're not. They're not going to steal the election. And if you think they're going to steal the election, you are what is accurately called a stupid person. It is not going to happen. And I don't care whether you're on the left or on the right, and I don't care if I offend you. You're a stupid person if you believe the election's going to be stolen. You know why? Because you want to believe the election's going to be stolen because you would rather believe that than accept the election if your guy loses. And that is why we can't have nice things in this country. Neither side wants to accept an outcome they don't like and are convinced there must be some grand conspiracy of people stealing things from them when, no, you just lost. That's it. Maybe this is what happens when all the kids win sports anymore. They grow up and realize that, oh, there actually are winners and losers, and there weren't when I was a kid playing soccer, and so there can't be now, but there are, so someone must have stolen it. You know what? Life's not fair, and sometimes you lose an election. It doesn't mean the Russians stole the election, Democrats, and it doesn't mean the union stole the election, Republicans. It just means you lost because ultimately the voters rejected your candidate because he sucked. And I don't know which candidate that is, but we'll find out sometime after Election Day, and you're just going to have to deal with it. I typically don't entertain topic requests on this program. Do you know why? If we made it a habit, all of you would be requesting I talk about particular topics. But considering it's one of my pastors, I feel like I need to honor it. <laughs> uh, my buddy uh, John Kinzer at, at my church actually uh, texted me the other day and said, you should probably talk a little more about critical race theory. Uh, and he's right uh, because, man, is it topical for what's going on right now. And so just as a programming note, at the bottom of the hour, after we come back from the next commercial break, at 35 after the hour, call your friends, call your family, and tell them to listen. You you hear a lot about critical theory these days, critical race theory in particular. What is it? You probably need to know about it because if your kids are in a, in a college – or a public school, they are encountering it, and you genuinely need to know what's going on and and why it's ridiculous and how to push back on it. Uh, and so I will I will spend some time with you on that. And and the resource I will use to walk you through it is from none other than Tim Keller uh, from Westminster Seminary, the, the head of the oh what was the Redeemer in New York, uh, PCA pastor. Uh, who has uh, written a great piece on critical race theory and, and how ridiculous it is. And I realize there are a lot of conservative uh, Christians out there who sometimes get skeptical of Keller. He's actually really, really good on this issue. And I want to walk you through what exactly critical theory is. Before we get there, though, and this ties into it, I don't know if you've seen uh, in Washington, D.C., they are encouraging the mayor of Washington, D.C. to advocate for tearing down the Washington Monument. They're encouraging the mayor of Washington to actually remove, relocate, or contextualize the Washington Monument, among others. Um, also, so here's a recommendation. This is a commission appointed by Washington's mayor. 
And the commission has urged the mayor to use the mayor's position on the National Capital Memorial Advisory Commission to recommend the federal government remove, relocate, or contextualize uh, the Christopher Columbus Fountain, the Benjamin Franklin statue, the Andrew Jackson statue, the Thomas Jefferson Memorial, the George Mason Memorial, the Francis Griffin Newlands Memorial Fountain, the Andrew Pike statue, and the George Washington Monument and Statue. You know, the big obelisk on the mall in Washington, D.C.? That thing, they want it torn down. Do you know why? Slavery. That's right. Slavery. We must we must get rid of American history because of that, which is ridiculous. But there you are. Now it's not going to happen, mind you. But this is the um, this is the era that we live in, and it is the era upon which um, we, as a people, must navigate through the craziness, the bat poop crazy times of our lives. Now, some of you are wondering um, who on earth is Francis Griffin Newlands? I just googled him. Turns out he was a senator from Nevada, a supporter of Western expansion. He helped pass the Newlands Reclamation Act of 1902, which created the Bureau of Reclamation. Uh, But he was also an avowed white supremacist and argued publicly for racial restrictions on immigration and repealing the 15th Amendment. He also founded the neighborhoods of Chevy Chase and uh, Washington, D.C. and Chevy Chase, Maryland. There you go. Uh, So they want to tear down a statue of him. Uh, it is a mem- well, it's a memorial fountain in Chevy Chase Circle, which is a federal park that divides the District of Columbia from Maryland. Uh, some have advocated removing his name from it uh, because he was an avowed white supremacist. Okay, he wasn't a founding father. I don't have a ton of sympathy. But what about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson? And, and you know, the crazy one has been, frankly, if you want a sense of just how nuts these people are, you know, Benjamin Franklin owned, his family owned slaves in the 1750s, and then he had an epiphany. He listened to several pastors preach against it, and he determined that the American struggle for independence was incompatible with slavery. If we were going to say that uh, God created all men equal, and we were all endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights that he could not be an advocate of slavery. And he gave up his slaves and started the American Abolition Society and became the most prominent abolitionist at the founding, the most prominent abolitionist of the founding fathers. And they want his statue in Washington, D.C. torn down to thank him, I guess, for beginning an official organized abolitionist movement in the United States. These people make no sense that they, they genuinely are crazy. Crazy people with grievances are always dangerous people. When we come back, we should delve into critical race theory, why it matters, where it comes from, what it is. You need to educate yourselves because you're going to hear a lot about it, particularly if Biden and Harris win, it's going to become a thing and it's crazy talk. And we should begin the education of the audience on what exactly it is, why it matters, why it's nuts, and what you can do to push back on it. Uh, And to do that, there's no better place to start than this thing very recently written by Tim Keller uh, on justice in America, secular justice versus God's justice. And one of the things he focuses on is the justice aspect of critical race theory. 
And we'll delve into it when we come back on the other side of this break right here on The Eric Erickson Show. We'll be back. Hello, hello, it is Eric Erickson here. It is my show, and the phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, E-R-I-C-K. That is 877-973-7425, 877-973-7425. Yep, I gave it to you right. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I go to a PCA church, uh, First Pres in Macon. And, well, can I even say that in all honesty now? It's been so long since we've been. Gosh, the, the quarantine. Y'all, I, I got to... I'll, I'll get to critical theory, but let, let me let me mildly confessional here. I, I feel like I'm failing my kids in faith right now because um, we just, we, we with Christie's situation and my own, frankly, we just haven't been engaged in church. Uh, and it's really easy to say, oh, we're going to get up and we're going to watch it on, on YouTube, and we don't. Um, and it's, it's I, I got a whole lot of guilt about it, frankly. Uh, and I feel like we're we're letting our kids slip by, uh, falling away from church, not really from faith. We talk about it with them, but I really always wanted my kids to grow up and be active in a way I couldn't be uh, in youth group uh, and surrounded with kids. And we got them in a great school with good Christian kids and and Bible classes and stuff. But man, sometimes I feel like I'm 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 failing. Uh, but we, we to the extent that is is our church, our church like some bigger churches, you know, you've got the, you got the head pastor, the senior pastor who preaches on Sunday typically. And then you've got the, uh, pastor for the older people and the pastor for the middle-aged people where I am now. (laughs) And then you got the pastor for the younger couples. And then you got the pastor for the kids and the college kids. Uh, a buddy of mine, his dad is actually the pastor of a PCA church. and, And what is his role? He is the pastor to the pastors. It's like, what does the pastor to the pastors do? Well, their church has a uh, a senior pastor. They've got an uh, an older adult pastor, a middle aged pastor. They got the college professor or the college pastor, the young kids pastor, the middle aged pastor, the the pastor for this, the pastor for that. And so they decided the pastors needed a pastor to go to, who's a retired person who has experience and lived in the area and and wanted some extra income. So he's the pastor to the pastors, and he rounds up all the pastors, including the senior pastor, and he works with them disciples them, which I, I find very interesting. It's a, it's a great business if you can get into it, I guess. Uh, but, you know, I've been going to seminary for a while as well because I got invited to preach and and felt very uncomfortable preaching. And, and finally, having gone to seminary, uh, I'm still working my way through it and I hadn't had been to class for a while. Um, I feel comfortable preaching on Sundays. Uh, if you need somebody to fill in in your pulpit some Sunday, I'm, 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 I'm okay with it. I, I've done it. Uh, I got a great sermon on Jonah, um, but uh, I, I'm, I do it. I don't even charge. Like I won't take an honorarium from from a church. Uh, but anyway, uh, so our uh, one of our pastors at our church texted me the other day, and he said he, he wished I would spend a little more time on this critical theory stuff because a lot of people don't understand it, and it keeps coming up more and more. And I thought, you know, I actually I, I spent a little bit of time. It's been several months ago now on Tim Keller. And his writing about uh, the forms of justice. He has a very good write up on justice. Uh, uh, gospelinlife.com. Gospelinlife.com is the website where it is. And he outlines the various forms of secular justice and how they compare to biblical justice. And if you're a conservative, it's a little challenging to read. 
because you recognize if, if you're like me, we believe in individual liberty, individual responsibility and all that, that, that actually there is a corporate aspect to justice in the Bible. If you're a liberal who believes in, in total corporate justice, uh, you, it's challenging to you as well uh, because some of your uh, sacred cows fall by the wayside as well. The last one that he touches on, though, is the postmodern idea of power. A just society subverts the power of dominant groups in favor of the oppressed. And how do you deal with um, justice there? And I want to read to you some of what he writes uh, because I, I think it really captures what's going on with, with critical theory. So let me, let me read to you how he describes it, and he does a very fair job of articulating it. This postmodern justice theory is in some ways the newest to the scene, though it has an older pedigree. Drawing on the teachings of Karl Marx, what can be called postmodern critical theory has emerged very recently with its own account of justice, which is sharply different from all the others in modern society. Because it has taken shape most recently and has come on the scene so forcefully, we should take time to describe and interact with it. Postmodern critical theory argues several things. First, the explanation of all unequal outcomes in wealth, well-being, and power is never due to individual actions or to differences in cultures or to differences in human abilities, but only and strictly due to unjust social structures and systems. The only way to fix unequal outcomes for the downtrodden is through social policy, never by asking anyone to change their behavior or culture. Second, all art, religion, philosophy, morality, law, media, politics, education, and forms of the family are determined not by reason or by truth, but by social forces as well. Everything is determined by your class consciousness and social location. Religious doctrine together with all politics and laws, are always at bottom a way for people to get or maintain social status, wealth, and therefore power over others. Third, therefore, reality is at bottom nothing but power. And if that is the case, then to see reality, power must be mapped through the means of intersectionality. The categories are race, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, and sometimes others. If you're a white, male, straight, cisgender, then you have the highest amount of power. If you are none of these at all, you are the most marginalized and oppressed, and there are various categories in the middle. Most importantly, each category toward the powerless end of the spectrum has a greater moral authority and a greater ability to see the way truly things are. Only powerlessness and oppression brings moral high ground and true knowledge. Therefore, those with more privilege, must not enter into any debate. They have no right or ability to advise the oppressed, blinded as they are by their social location. They simply must give up their power. Fourth, the main way power is exercised is through language, through dominant discourses. A dominant discourse is any truth claim, whether grounded in supposed reason and science or in religion and morality. Language does not merely describe reality. It constructs or creates it. Power structures mask themselves behind the language of rationality and truth. So academia hides its unjust structures behind talk of academic freedom. 
corporations behind talk of free enterprise, science behind talk of empirical objectivity, and religion behind talk of divine truth. All of these seeming truth claims are really just constructed narratives designed to dominate, and as such, they must be unmasked. Reason, debate, and freedom of speech, therefore, is out. It only gives unjust discourse airtime. The only way to reconstruct reality is a just way, in a just way, is to subvert dominant discourses, and this requires control of speech. Fifth, cultures, like persons, can be mapped through intersectionality. In one sense, no culture is better in any regard to any other culture. All cultures are equally valid, but people who see their cultures as better and judge other cultures as inferior, or even people who see their own culture as normal and judge others as exotic, are members of an oppressive culture. And oppressive cultures are, though the word is not used, inferior and to be despised. Finally, neither individual rights nor individual identity are primary. Traditional liberal emphasis on individual human rights, private property, free speech, is an obstacle to the radical changes society will need to undergo in order to share wealth and power. And it is an illusion to think that as an individual, you can carve out an identity in any way different or independent of others of your race, ethnicity, gender, or so on. Group identity and rights are the only real ones. Guilt is not assigned on the basis of individual actions, but on the basis of group membership and social racial status. That is, uh, now, now people who believe in critical theory will take issue with it because they don't like giving firm definitions to these things. But that from Tim Keller that I just read is a very accurate description of critical theory and in particular critical race theory. You, the individual, bear no will, no objective rights, no objective goals. You are part of a class. You are part of a race. You are part of a collective something else. You individually do not matter in critical theory. And you need to understand that. This is what is being practiced on college campuses now and being taught and being indoctrinated in in various schools. You yourself, your free will do not matter. You're all part of being defined by your race, by your wealth, by your upbringing. Now, let's go back to Keller. And he analyzes this, and he takes a Christian perspective on it. How do you analyze this? First, he writes, it's deeply incoherent. If all truth claims and justice agendas are socially constructed domain power, then why aren't the claims and agendas of the adherents of this view subject to the same critique? Why are the postmodern justice advocates' claims that this is oppression unquestionably morally right, while all other moral claims are merely social constructs? If everyone is blinded by class consciousness and social location, why aren't they? Intersectionality claims oppressed people see things clearly. But why would they if social forces make us wholly what we are and control how we understand reality? Are they less formed by social forces than others? And of all people with power who call the shot socially, culturally, economically, and control public discourse, inevitably use it for domination, then if any revolutionaries were able to replace the oppressors at the top of society, why would they not become the people that would should subsequently be rebelled against and replace themselves? What would make them different? The postmodern account of justice has no good answer for this. You cannot insist that all moral morality is culturally constructed and relative, then claim that your moral claims are not. This is not a flaw that only Christians can see, and this may therefore be a fatal flaw for the entire theory. But 
I'm going to jump in here and say that this is the one we see repeatedly with communism. It's it's the ending of Animal Farm, where some are more great, equal than others. That's how it plays out. The supposed oppressed people become the dominant people, and then they gather everyone's guns, and you can never rebel against them again. Now, back to Keller, he also notes it's too simplistic. The postmodern view of justice follows Rousseau and Marx, who saw human beings as inherently good or blank slates. Any evil is instilled in us by society, by social systems and forces. So any pathology, poverty, crime, abuse, violence is due to one thing only, wrong social policy. But biblically, we know we are complex beings socially, both individually and social creatures made in the image of a a three-in-one God, morally sinful and fallen, yet valuable in the image of God, and constitutionally, we're equally soul, spirit, and body. The reasons for evil and for unjust outcomes in life are multiple and complex. So, for instance, the restoration of a poor community will require a rich, multidimensional understanding of human flourishing. There certainly is a need for social reform and the dismantling of systemic injustice. But people also need meaning in life and strong families and ways to grow character and healthy, functional communities and moral discipline. Postmodern critical race theory ignores the complexity of what makes humans thrive and therefore its programs won't actually work. Third, it undermines our common humanity. The postmodern view makes one's racial or group identity primary, superseding all loyalties to a nation or to the human race or even to family. And therefore, it denies sin. The Bible teaches sin is pervasive and universal. We're each members of a race or nationality that contains much common, unique grace to contribute to the world. But every culture comes with particular sinful idolatries. It also, and this is a really big key here, it makes forgiveness and reconciliation impossible. Mirosaw Volth wrote, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Without using the word sin, the adherents of critical race theory continue to do as Volth describes. Reconciliation flounders. There can't be forgiveness. There can only be domination of the oppressed over the oppressor. And it also offers a highly self-righteous performative identity. Critical theory view provides two kinds of identity that are performative, either being a member of an oppressed group fighting for justice or a white ally anti-racist. Both identities, like all other identities not based in scripture, can produce anxiety because of the need to prove oneself sufficiently justice-oriented. You see this constantly where you never do enough to prove yourself. And lastly, it's prone to domination. The theory sees liberal values such as freedom of speech and freedom of religion as mere ways to oppress people. Often, it puts freedoms in scare quotes. As a result, adherents of critical theory resort to constant expressions of anger and outrage to silence critics, as well as to censorship and other kinds of social, economic, and legal pressure to marginalize depressed views. The postmodern critical theory view sees all injustice as happening on a human level and so demonizes human beings rather than recognizing the evil forces, the world, the flesh, the devil, at work through all human life including their own. Adherents of the view end up being utopian. They see themselves as saviors rather than recognizing one true savior. That's critical theory. It is a communist Marxist view that lumps all of us by our race, our wealth, and where we're from 
It takes away our individuality and presumes that if you are a dominant, you must be oppressed. And if you are an oppressed person, you must dominate. It's all about power. And if you understand it's all about power, you understand why they are behaving the way they are in these cities around the country, and you understand how it has infested college, academia, and the like, uh, and why they are so prone on you being censored and shut up. They don't like your views out there because they consider your views bad and not worthy of consideration. In reality, they want you off the field so that they can dominate. They want you to be made to care As I would say, you need to be mindful of critical race theory. It is predominant out there in the world right now. You see it with the talking heads on TV, and you see it all over the nation. I I, I need to wade into dangerous territory here. There is an aggressive move by the media to have Kyle Rittenhouse condemned by the White House. Uh, this clearly reeks of some level of, of coordination with the Democrats to make uh, this about uh, Kyle Rittenhouse and uh, militia members or whoever showing up to defend businesses as opposed to uh, raising the question of why they were going to Kenosha, Wisconsin, which wasn't to cause harm but to protect businesses. Uh, the New York Times, of course, shows that uh, he was acting in self-defense or so it seems he, someone threw a Molotov cocktail at him. Uh, someone was chasing him with a gun. Uh, they knocked him over, were beating him with a skateboard, and he opened fire and, and killed two people, wounded a third. It appears to be self-defense from the footage uncovered by the New York Times. And yet there's a big push out there to get the White House to denounce the kid uh, for doing it. Now, I'm on record saying he should not have been there. He shouldn't have been there, y'all. And frankly, this is why, one of the many reasons why uh, these Trump-supporting militia people are showing up and it's giving the media just another excuse to distract from the fact that Antifa is burning the place down. In fact, we're hearing repeatedly now, this is the latest talking point, well, Portland and Kenosha, they're, they're not burning down. We're, uh, I'm here, I'm having coffee in Portland. Nobody's burning Portland down. Yeah, uh, how much of Portland is, is on fire or not? I mean, you, you got this exchange with... Don Lemon and, and uh, Chris Cuomo. White people yeah, being afraid about black people marauding it. through the state. I get it, but I don't think that, I don't think that, I think white people are smart enough to know it's not just all white people out there and they're not, they're not going to be suckers for uh, what this president is doing. The truth is the truth. And I'm going to talk about that. And Kenosha, all of it, you just said, not all of it is on fire. And it's, it's just a whole bunch of mess and and malarkey as the former vice president says well, not, not all of it is on so how much of it is on fire how, how much of it is on fire and it, it's just it, it's it's very interesting how they're trying to put it all on trump he's not he and his supporters aren't the ones doing it that's why rittenhouse shouldn't have been there among other reasons is is it just distracts from what antifa's doing the other reason rittenhouse should have been there is he's a 17 years he's 17 years old and he's not a police officer and he doesn't really have police training and i've had somebody email me say well actually he had some training he didn't he didn't go to police tra- officers he he didn't have that training Letting a 17-year-old roam a city that is not his own in a state that is not his own with an AR is irresponsible. And I, if you can't see that, I don't understand your worldview, frankly. He shouldn't have been there. But what he did seems to have been in self-defense. And I'm not going to condemn the kid when that's what it looks like to me in self-defense. Maybe we'll learn otherwise, but it looks like he was in self-defense. That the media wants the president and Republicans to denounce this kid, though, when they don't even want to denounce the protesters burning down cities is deeply telling to me they are in this for Biden to win 
They're not in it to be fair, honest, and objective reporters about what's actually going on out there. And that is deeply disturbing to me. Uh, we're going to see more of this in the days uh, days ahead. It's just, wow. New to Medicare? Start now. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about some of the top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including plans for $0 a month in plan premiums, low out-of-pocket costs, and expansive provider networks. If you're thinking about a Medicare Advantage plan, MyHealthPolicy.com is a great place to go to find a plan that meets your needs. Learn more about your options. Even talk with a licensed insurance agent. MyHealthPolicy.com. Now that's a parking spot. Introducing the I may have underestimated the size of my car policy with accident forgiveness from American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote. Find an agent. Visit AmFam.com. Optional policy features not included in base policies. Review policy for coverages and exclusions. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.